Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. More charges against former President Donald Trump. It's an updated indictment in the classified documents case, also adding another defendant, Mar-a-Lago's head of maintenance. The latest on this on the Fox News Radio hourly newscast and at foxnews.com. I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, July 28, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. There's more talk among House Republicans about impeaching President Biden. There is absolutely pressure on the speaker. There are a lot of divisions within the Republican Party right now, and he's going to face this when it comes to spending bills and everything else. I mean, sort of a nightmare for him. Speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. I'm Dave Anthony. It's hot across America, and we might have to get used to it. So look, Temperatures are rising and global warming is a real problem. And so it's not surprising to say overall, we would expect as temperatures rise, we're going to see more heat wave. And I'm Douglas McKinnon. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Both 2024 presidential frontrunners have legal clouds hanging over their campaigns. Former President Trump and his criminal indictments and President Biden with his son Hunter's plea deal rejected, at least for now, and his family finances under investigation by House Republicans. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says it could lead to an impeachment inquiry. Some Republicans say it's time. He leaves us no choice. Texas Republican Wesley Hunt on Fox and Friends, Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin. My colleagues should educate themselves on the basics of impeachment law. Um, Impeachment is for a high crime and misdemeanor. It's not for policy disagreements or personal animosity. Speaker McCarthy acknowledges there's no proof right now of any wrongdoing by the president, but says they'll follow this to the end. Well, they say, listen, that some of the subpoenas and things that they've sent out, congressional items are not being complied with. Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. So they're sort of saying, we don't know that we want to go full impeachment mode here, but if that's the framework that we have to use to get answers and documents and witnesses and things that we're looking for, we may be willing to go down that path. Now, listen, if that leads us to impeachable offenses, well, we're already on the trail. But that's not the reason we're starting this necessarily. If you would just work with us, we wouldn't have to do it. I mean, there's disagreement even among Republicans. For Ken Buck from Colorado says, mm-hmm. look, this is just McCarthy trying to distract or, or placate the right wing of his party. Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia has been trying to impeach Biden from the jump, she says every Republican should get behind this just based on the available evidence. Now, we, you and I talked during the Trump impeachments about the danger of this just happening every administration, and nobody wants it to look like that. Right. You don't want it to be a knee-jerk reaction whenever you have an imposed you know, House and a White House when they're from different parties, that it's always going to be, okay, we're now going to launch impeachment investigations against the person in charge, and they're going to have to deal with this for the remainder of their time. You know, it's interesting because You have to flip positions in Washington so often. You can say, this is crazy. This is a witch hunt. You can say from either side of the aisle. It it depends on on who's in charge and who has the power. But the House now um, is the one thing that Republicans have in Washington to try to effectuate any kind of change. And there is absolutely pressure on the speaker. There are a lot of divisions within the Republican Party right now. And he's going to face this when it comes to spending bills, 
and everything else. I mean, sort of a nightmare for him. But Democrats are going to make sure the spotlight is shining on this division within the Republican Party as much as possible right now. And while speaking of the Biden family, Hunter Biden, this plea deal is on hold. It may need tweaking. Um, it may get blown up altogether and send the whole thing to trial. I don't know. The Republicans say, look, this is justice. He doesn't deserve a plea deal, but it may pan out. I mean, yeah, the, the judge has now said, you guys, both sides have 30 days to brief me on this thing. And I think it's interesting. Andy McCarthy has written about this and many other legal commentators out there say this is a strange position because it doesn't feel like a truly adversarial process where you've got the two sides coming together. Listen, of course, Hunter Biden's attorneys want to wrap this up for their client, want this chapter to be closed. But the DOJ also wants the chapter closed so they can say we did the investigation. We got to this plea deal. He's being held accountable for X, Y, Z. We're moving on. Where the judge, it seems, turned out to be the one who was sort of the adversarial party here asking questions like, wait a minute, does this mean all potential future violations? What if something comes about with his representation of a foreign government or allegations that he didn't register properly as an agent? Does this insulate him? And DOJ basically said no. And that's when Hunter's attorneys were like, wait a minute, we can't sign on to this deal then. So there was just a lot more to the deal than what the two parties that negotiated it were hoping it would be signed off on. And the judge had some important questions. And so she's given them this 30 days to put it back together. But whether it now branches out into these other areas, we'll have to see. It's confusing for David Weiss to say, we're shutting it down on the tax issues and on the gun issue if we get this plea deal done. But yes, there is still an ongoing investigation. Normally, when you have these plea deals, it's just a rubber stamp thing. OK, you agree, you agree. Right. And the judge says, OK, looks good to me. But here, everybody seemed like it, it just wasn't it, it wasn't the eyes weren't <laughs> dotted and T's weren't crossed. Right. Because as soon as, like I said, the judge started probing into does this cover, does this provide immunity for future potential charges? And DOJ said no. It seemed to Hunter's team, either they hadn't, I can't imagine they wouldn't have had those conversations, but they seemed surprised or unwilling to sign on to that deal. Like, they, we can't do that deal. If Hunter's not immune to future things that come up, then that's not the deal they thought they were going to get. But that seems, you know, there are those out there who will say sweetheart deal pejoratively, but it does seem like a pretty good deal if you're getting immunity against charges and crimes that you aren't even aware that you may be charged with. So that was a bridge too far for this judge. But we'll see. I mean, 30 days to brief. She'll then take a look at it and we'll see where it goes. As you know, there's this Senate Republican lunch that they do every week, and then normally they come out and they talk to reporters. Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, came out and, as usual, just started, you know, started talking, and then he just froze up and mm-hmm. and, and stayed frozen for quite a while. It's, it's hard to tell with him at first that something's wrong because he does speak very mm-hmm. deliberately. He chooses right. words very carefully. But at some point it became clear, oh, he's just not talking. Then he came back and he spoke. Have you spoken to anybody who have anything to say about his health and maybe his future? Well, just kind of probing around. Do you remember earlier this year he had that fall that was a serious concussion? And he that may have even been longer. But, you know, it, he was out for a while and we didn't hear from him for a while. And listen, he is the mastermind of running the show over there for Republicans in the Senate. He is known as a very, very skilled tactician, sort of what Nancy Pelosi is viewed as on the House side. He is on the Senate side. Like He knows the procedures. He knows the rules. He knows how to get things done. So when we didn't hear from him for a while, we thought, oh, maybe this was more than just a bump on the head. And so now it's reflecting back questions to that, like, were his injuries more serious? Does he need more time? You know, it raises questions because that, I think, frightened everybody. Um, Whether you love or don't love Mitch McConnell, I I think that was jarring and people were worried about him. But Everybody close to him, the the other senators and leadership at the GOP who were there are saying, 
he's fine. He's able to answer questions. He knows who he is. He knows where he is. He's the same sharp guy he's always been. And it was a momentary pause. Like Senate Democrat, California, Dianne Feinstein, she's had some pretty obvious cognitive problems Mm -hmm. in recent years that have been visibly worsening. There's been obviously Mm -hmm. a lot of talk about President Biden's age. Not that he's at the stage that Senator Feinstein may be at uh, cognitively, but uh, look, people have the right, I guess, to stay or go on their own terms. I mean, that's the really tough thing. You begin to wonder in any case um, with somebody who isn't 100% mentally or physically, how much of it is the staff? How much is the staff protecting them and propping them up and insulating them? Or how much is the person fine most of the time, but they have you know these moments and lapses? And it's been really tricky with uh, Senator Feinstein because you have Democrats and people from her own party calling her out. Now, some of them are motivated because they're backing people they want to replace her now that she's going to retire from her seat. So you have to wonder what their political uh, ambitions and motives are in some of those cases. Um, but, you know, I've never seen that kind of pause out of Mitch McConnell before. So you got to hope it's a one-time thing. But yeah, we have a lot of older people that run Washington. And, um, you know, I cover the Supreme Court where we got a lot of older people and they seem really sharp mentally and physically and able to do their job. So I guess it's a case-by-case basis. But um, yeah, Yeah. you got to look to the staffers and see how much they're actually running the show in some of these cases. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's doing one of those campaign reboots we hear about Every time he's like a like a third or 40 percent of his campaign staff is gone. He hasn't been going up in any polls. His small donors are of a lower proportion than most of the other candidates. But that can be a measure sort of of enthusiasm if, if a lot of people aren't giving him a lot of people aren't giving him a little bit of money. What can he do to get more voters to like him? I think he's got to be out there more. That's been one of the criticisms of him is that he was going like six weeks between visits out in Iowa at one point. Now that's changing this week because the PAC that is got, you know, $100 million plus dollars to support him and is helping him. Um, he's doing a bus tour with them through Iowa. And that's what people there on the ground have been saying. Listen, he doesn't need to do a bunch of big, huge to show up for the Lincoln Day dinners and those kinds of things. Like he needs to just be going to diners and Elks Lodges all day and schools and, you know, all of those things that you have to do. Look at how well that's been working for someone like Tim Scott. He's third in our polling in Iowa now. He's there like blanket all the time. Um, it seems like, yes, he's got to be in Washington and doing his job as a senator, but he's doing a lot of those little events that people in Iowa really like. They like it when you show up. They like it when you will take questions. They like it when it's unscripted. And, um, you know, DeSantis has been criticized for not doing more of that and not being there on the ground more in a place like Iowa. So, yeah, you know, most of these people who are running have day jobs. They have other things to do and other, um, you know, constituencies that they're responsible to. But I think his team gets that they can't be just a huge production and show up for the big stuff. Um, They've got to get lean and mean. They say he likes being an underdog. And I think what he's doing this week on this bus tour and being in these small places and having these intimate conversations in Iowa, you know, in places like New Hampshire, that's what the voters and the caucus goers expect. There's sometimes a disconnect between getting the job and doing the job. It's almost like acting, okay? You can be a really good or a really bad auditioner, but it has nothing to do with how you perform if you get the gig. It's the same thing here. Ron DeSantis is not the most Mm-hmm. You know, easygoing guy when it comes to just to being around folks, um, but he may or may not be a good president. You know, they've got to be good with all kinds of different media outlets, and that's what we're told is that DeSantis is going to do a lot more different media outlets. He's going to be making himself a lot more available. But yeah, I mean, governing is another thing. Now he'll point to his record and say, "Look at all this stuff we got across the finish line." His critics will say, "Well, yeah, you basically had GOP supermajorities in your state." House and Senate. So that helps when you're able to get those things done. 
but he says that's what he could do at the national level too. So um, I've seen him get very good receptions in Iowa with the big crowds. So I think he's now going to get out there and prove that he can do it with the small crowds too and remind them of what he's gotten done policy-wise. Shannon, finally, one bummer to me about the Hunter Biden news on Wednesday is that my what I was looking forward to that day was overshadowed, this UFO hearing in the House. <laughs> um, it kind of <laughs> got buried. There are claims that we have whatever spaceships or remnants of of, of a craft and what this whistleblower called biologics uh mm. meaning mm. meaning non-human whatever life form uh stashed away somewhere the pentagon denies it are we alone in the universe Shannon? i don't know i mean isn't this so fascinating i don't know we are being punked like on a national scale or if this stuff is really real i think you're right that it's like on any other week this hearing would get a ton of headlines When people are making allegations that we have spacecraft and remains of aliens and they know the locations of them, that raises eyebrows because these people are putting their names, their faces, their careers out there publicly on the line to make these claims. So to say, I've provided this information about locations of this stuff to the inspector general, um, man, after that hearing, I have more questions than answers. Same, but it's, it's, it's fun to think about. Shannon Bream, host of Fox News Sunday. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Chris. This is Douglas McKinnon with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's summer, so it's supposed to be hot, but it's been really hot. Miserable, and I get migraine headaches, so I try to avoid it as much as possible. Plenty of water. And, of course, in and out of the air condition, so that helps a lot. They're in Chicago, which is in the middle of a heat wave like a lot of America. There are warnings and advisories from the southwest to Texas, up to Minnesota, over to New England, to down to Virginia. It's important to drink plenty of water, even if you don't feel thirsty to stay hydrated. Mayor Eric Adams in New York City, where again today, it'll feel like over 100 degrees. Phoenix is forecast to top 110 for a record 29th day in a row, prompting President Biden to declare a hazard alert in the U.S., which has the Labor Department stepping up enforcement of rules to protect high-risk workers from farms to construction sites. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out. And we might have to get used to all this. July is on pace to be the hottest month for the Earth on record. So look, temperatures are rising and global warming is a real problem. And so it's not surprising to say overall, we would expect as temperatures rise, we're going to see more heat waves. Bjorn Lomborg has written many climate change books and is president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute. Whether this particular heat wave is caused by climate change is a much different thing and not really something that anyone can say with any kind of certainty. Researchers have come out this week and said that certainly what we've seen in the Southwest, also in Europe, could not have happened without the continuing buildup of warming gases in the air. It's virtually impossible without climate change to have these heat waves. Do you agree? I should just say, I'm, I'm a social scientist, so I'm just talking to a lot of the smart guys in the in the natural sciences. My understanding is what they're saying is it couldn't have been quite as hard or quite as hot 
as it otherwise would have been without global warming. They're not saying it wouldn't have happened. As you just pointed out, it's summer. We are going to see heat waves, but we'll see longer, stronger, hotter heat waves because of global warming. Okay. Now, we have had heat waves before. There are 1930s in the U.S. We had some terrible heat. What would be the difference between that then and now? So fundamentally, the point is that we're going to see more of those heat waves. So instead of just seeing them in, in that one decade or in uh, 1934 and 35, you will be more likely to see them every year. But of course, and one of incredibly important thing is to recognize in the same time, you also got air conditioning. So back in times of old, most people in the U.S. and everywhere else was just suffering through this, and it was really bad, and it killed a lot of people. And of course, one of the important points then is to make sure that everybody has access to air conditioning, that we have access to a way to make, for instance, cities more livable by putting in more greenery and water features, things that actually cool down cities and cool down people. That's the crucial bit, and that way we can actually save many more people. Okay. Now, climate change, we can also have extreme weather on the other end, right? We can have extreme cold, and cold can be even deadlier than the hot. Am I right? Yes. Every year, 173,000 people die from too low temperatures. So much, much more. We're talking about a large fraction more than what we're talking about with heat deaths. Yet nobody talks about this. And crucially, of course, as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat waves, as we talked about in the beginning, but you're going to see fewer cold waves. And because it affects a lot more people, that actually means that over the last couple of decades, we've seen fewer people die from temperature-related deaths, so from both heat and cold deaths. Because, yes, there are more people dying from heat, but many fewer people dying from cold. You need to hear both if you're actually going to be well-informed. You have faced criticism over your positions when it comes to climate change over the years, but you are not a climate denier. You, you've you said over and over again here in our conversation that global warming is here and it is real. So for those who deny it, how much on the fringe are they now? Again, it's hard for me to tell, but it, it seems very, very clear that the overwhelming scientific indication is that if you put in more CO2 in the atmosphere, all other things equal, you're going to see higher temperatures. The real issue here is what impact will that have on humans? So, for instance, uh, a lot of people have talked about the fact that we have a lot more people dying from heat in uh, Phoenix. Uh, what most people don't talk about is that most of these people are drug addicts and homeless people. And so the question here is, if you want to help these people not die from heat, which I think is an absolutely right policy, are you going to try to change the entire global energy system in order to help them ineffectively in 100 years? Or do you actually want to make sure that you address the fundamental problems, which is drug abuse and, and uh, homelessness? Uh, again, we seem to be almost focused entirely in saying everything comes down to should you use more or less fossil fuels, whereas the right answer is very often no. It's some of these other things we do. You should have more air conditioning. You should have more heating. Uh, you should not be homeless. You should not be a drug addict. Those are the kinds of simple and fairly obvious solutions that we know how to implement much cheaper and with much more success. Now, you've written many books, obviously, about climate change and how to deal with it. 
there have been a lot of people who want to spend a lot of money to get rid of all fossil fuels, which over to electric vehicles, for instance, go to wind and solar energy, which is going to cost a lot of money. What is your argument against some of that? Mostly that it's just wishful thinking. Remember, uh, most politicians now, the Biden administration, but certainly most other governments in the rich world, are now basically promising to go net zero, uh, so no more fossil fuels or close to that, uh, by mid-century. Uh, and there's just no indication that that's actually anywhere on the trajectory of where the world is headed. Also, uh, the estimates from Bank of America, from McKinsey, many others, seems to indicate that this is going to cost in the order of five to six trillion dollars if done extremely well. So five to six trillion dollars each and every year. This is just an outrageously large amount of money and something that I think most voters are just not willing to do. So it's something that politicians routinely talk about, but it won't actually happen. And so the reality is you can get some of the rich countries to go some of the way. You won't get most of the rich countries to go all the way. And you certainly won't get most of the big emitters, that is China, India, and Africa to go even a, just a tiny bit of the way. And that's why we're basically just talking about stuff that's wishful thinking, sounds great, it's not going to happen, both, both because it's incredibly expensive and because most, especially countries in the poor world, have other and more important issues to deal with, like lifting their populations out of poverty. Your most recent book is Best Things First. So what would you advocate should be done instead? So first of all, you should focus on solving climate change through innovation. That's how we solve almost all big problems in the world. If you think about the Los Angeles area in the 1950s, it was terribly polluted, mostly because of cars. The solution was not to tell everyone to not use their cars and walk instead. That would probably never have worked. But the solution was innovation. In 1978, we innovated the catalytic converter. You plug it on your car. Yeah, it cost a couple hundred dollars. And then you basically don't pollute anymore. We're talking about 95, 98, 99% less of local air pollution, the stuff that actually made smogs a big thing in Los Angeles in the 1950s. So again, we need to recognize that electric cars are going to be great for some people in some set, uh, uh, setups, but it's not going to be the main part of the solution. And putting in trillions of dollars is not actually going to change that fact very much. Okay. So again, it's innovation. And then at the same time, of course, we have to remember that there are many other problems in the world. Uh, tuberculosis, malaria still kills lots of people, poor education, chronic diseases, lack of free trade, all these things that we also need to focus on. And climate change is one problem, but it's just one of many. And we should remember to fix all of them. Okay. Now, in your book, uh, you, you had false alarm, which got into the panic of climate change, especially in some of the media. There was a New York Times review of the book that called you naive for believing that markets work well, ignoring a half century of research, the author said, of market failures. I don't think I'm naive. Uh, look, there's absolutely market failures. Climate change is one that we're not pricing carbon. That's what I'm uh, pointing out. That's one of the issues. On the other hand, you also need to have a sense of proportion with any realistic carbon tax. This is only going to be a minor part 
of the solution of the problem. You need to recognize the only real way you're going to fix climate change is essentially innovating cheap green energy. Uh, if we can make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch. Uh, one good example, not quite ready there, is the U.S. fracking in the early 2000s, where the U.S., through innovation, basically made gas much, much cheaper. Now, gas emits about half as much CO2 as, as coal, and that was basically why a lot of coal stopped being used for electricity, instead used gas, and that's why the U.S. has reduced its emissions more than any other country in the last 10 years. That's because you made an innovation. Now, gas is not fully green, but it's much greener than coal. And that's a way you actually make sure that people switch over. That's how you solve global warming in the longer run. What should people do? The average consumer. So there... Yeah. So there's a lot of arguments. Oh, consumers should do this, that, and the other. What we need to recognize is most of our actions are going to be fairly small. So, for instance, people will argue uh, we should become vegetarians or so on. Uh, I'm a vegetarian personally, so I would love for more people to become vegetarian because that would give me more choice in all my restaurants. But the truth is this will possibly cut about 4% of your emissions uh, on average, and given that uh, vegetarian food is typically uh, cheaper, it actually means you have more money left over. You can spend that on other things. Uh, the economists call it rebound effect. And that means your real reduction is going to be 2% of your emissions or something that would have cost you in the order of $10, $20 on the uh, U.S. emission trading system per year. So again, Yes, by all means, be more conscious about it, but this is not predominantly an issue that you solve through personal choice. This is something we solve as a society by being smart. Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Sayer. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Nearly five years after South Georgia's big peanut landmark was taken down by Hurricane Michael, its replacement is back up, gracing the roadside along Interstate 75. The Big Peanut is a symbol of pride in the heart of South Georgia's peanut belt and a great place for tourists to pull off the highway in the small town of Ashburn, which is about halfway between Macon and the Florida state line. The peanut had stood there since 1975 when it was built atop a brick pedestal before its demise on October 10, 2018, when it was shelled by fierce winds. The Ashburn-Turner County Chamber of Commerce raised nearly $80,000 to replace it and called up Surser Machine and Fabrication with an order for a new big peanut. This one would be made of sheet metal, not fiberglass, and took workers a combined seven to 800 hours to build it. The new peanut stands more than 40 feet tall and weighs around 5,000 pounds. It was rededicated this week and has some modern upgrades. It's lit up with LED lights at night. And Chamber of Commerce officials are working on a new selfie spot so tourists can get the best angle with the new big peanut. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Douglas McKinnon. What's on your mind? What's up with the mouse? Did it eat some tainted cheese, which poisoned its mind to the need to follow sound business practices while giving the vast majority of the audience the entertainment it craves? The mouse, in this case, being the Disney company. The tainted cheese being a self-destructive woke agenda. Does Disney hate its investors and stockholders? The latest symptom of this, let's punish our investors and stockholders disease, being the pending live action remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, or as it is quickly and rightfully coming to be known as Snow Woke and the politically correct magical creatures. It was Disney itself which offered up the label of magical creatures. It did so in part because as the entertainment company tried to explain, to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film, we are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. Several questions flow from that explanation. Did Disney poll the dwarfism community to ask if it would be offended by a remake of the 1937 classic? By unilaterally deciding to take a different approach, is Disney denying dwarf actors much needed work? The Disney company and the far left executives who have run it have every right to hold and espouse points of view. But certainly, in a corporation that does have responsibilities to investors and shareholders, there are certain times and places to make such viewpoints known. We must also assume that Disney made the new Snow Woke film to make money, as in a profit. But then the same can be said of them regarding the now massive flop titled Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. A number of credible estimates speculate. The latest Indiana Jones film will lose between 200 million to 300 million, a loss that is devastating to investors and shareholders. That, on top of losses previously incurred by the likes of Lightyear, Thor, Love and Thunder, Strange World, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, The Little Mermaid, and Elemental. Losses, analysts believe, amount to over 1 billion, as in $1,000 million. Many people believe those losses, as well as the ones now negatively impacting Disney Plus and its theme parks, are directly attributable to Disney now infusing identity politics into almost every single one of their films. Most of the audience Disney targets is struggling to get by in life as it is continually pummeled by failing policies of the politicians who purport to speak for them. Most don't want to walk into a movie theater turn on the Disney Channel or go to Disney World to be lectured on how close-minded or climate-denying certain Disney executives or actors believe them to be. So, to Disney, I would stress that for the benefit of those desperate to be entertained, your investors and your shareholders, please do feel free to make documentary after documentary espousing your various opinions regarding ideology, identity politics, and climate change while leaving woke lectures out of films, television shows, and attractions meant to entertain. If you follow this very simple formula, I can all but guarantee future films, shows, and attractions will once again be profitable. And if you listen really, really hard, you can almost hear Goofy saying, 
Gosh, Mickey, it's economics and common sense 101. Everybody knows that. This is Douglas MacKinnon, author of The 56, Liberty Lessons from Those Who Risked All to Sign the Declaration of Independence. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.